0: Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora before I get to today's episode, a quick ask for you guys. We absolutely love hearing your reactions and responses to these Trailblazer stories. So if you could drop us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today, we would love to hear from you. And also, we're getting more excited and amped about throwing more events in New York City and hopefully in other cities in the U.S. So if you want to stay tuned for community events and also just get our episodes straight to your inbox, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailblazers.com. Now to today's guest. Our guest today is none other than Seema Modi, global markets reporter for CNBC. Sema is CNBC's first South Asian on-air personality. She joined the network in 2011 and currently focuses on the intersection of foreign policy and Wall Street, as well as the travel industry. She also hosts a daily segment called European Close, which keeps U.S. investors informed on European market happenings. She has also appeared on several other CNBC shows, including Street Signs and Closing Bell. In 2014, she spent a year in London, co-anchoring a CNBC program called Worldwide Exchange, as well as other live reports for CNBC Europe. Her reporting to date spans COVID-19, biotech, Brexit, Indian elections, and much, much more. She is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the prominent American think tank, and holds a degree in biological sciences from the University of Washington the first TV personality to join us on Trailblazers. I couldn't be more excited to welcome her to our podcast today. Thanks for coming on, Sima. Simi, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for your leadership in this
1: space and what you're doing, highlighting South Asians. I think it's so wonderful.
0: Thank you for your kind words. And honestly, people like me draw inspiration from people like you. So thank you for your leadership. I actually want to start today on the topic of representation partially for this reason. Not only did you become CNPC's first South Asian on air TV personality, but you were also a woman covering business news. And as we know, within journalism, business news tends to be very male dominated. Can you share a little bit about what it was like joining this network 11 years ago with that context in mind?
1: Yeah, I think diversity across journalism has certainly improved over the past couple of years. And I think that's so important to have storytellers, diverse voices at the table to really tell these stories, whether it's politics, financial news, or geopolitics. I always owned my story. Even if I was one of the few, I made sure to own who I am, where I came from, and also use that as a way to tell powerful stories. So I think if anything, Being unique is a good thing. Allow yourself to stand out, and I think I've really stayed true to that as a journalist here in the US and even overseas when I was in India as the only American. I may have been Indian by nature, but being an American in the newsroom, I was once again the only one. And so I've found myself in those situations often, but I've tried to thrive in those moments, right? Use it as an asset versus as a hindrance.
0: Absolutely. And I want to double click on your experience in India at CNBC TV18, where you covered the country's economy and co anchored programs like Power Breakfast. It's interesting because you're born and raised in America, but you had this full circle moment of going back and starting your career in India. Was there something special about that? And can you speak a little bit to that experience? It was such a special
1: experience, absolutely. And you're right, when I first was given the opportunity to work in India, my parents were like, what? We came to the U.S. to give... (laughs) A Great opportunity. Here you are going back to India for this experience. But it was ironic and it actually turned out to be a wonderful experience. It allowed me to kickstart my career in journalism that one year on the ground in Mumbai working for CNBC TV 18. And I loved every minute of it. It's very different to be in India as a working professional. In your 20s versus going to India with your parents for a wedding or shopping or what Indian American families do here in America. Listen, it was also tough. India is chaotic in its own way. Financial news moves really fast. It's an economy that is also growing at an exponential speed. So hitting the ground running, that was a challenge. But I also tried to use my own limited network to help me build sources and report on news within the financial world. Unlike my peers who grew up in India, they had really strong networks across the country, ranging from family members, folks they went to school with. I didn't have that. What I did have was a great American expat community that I was dialed into. And I really tried to use those individuals who were working in India to better understand the Indian investment landscape. And through that, I was able to build some really great contacts and over time report good stories, I think, that got the attention of folks even here in the U.S. that led to this opportunity.
0: Wow, super interesting. It almost sounds like because you were kickstarting your career in this environment that was less familiar to you, where you didn't have as many roots or as many connections, it forced you to be a little bit scrappier as a journalist and probably led you to be more successful down the line aka today would you say that that's an accurate statement yeah i think a lot of people
1: like to say oh things just came easily it did not come easily for me (laughs) had to hustle and i'm very proud of it i'm very proud of the fact that you know, I put myself out there, there were challenges, there were failures, but I would wake up the next day and say, all right, brush it off. Let's keep going. And I think, especially as a journalist, you got to have that work ethic and that, again, that hustle to be able to deliver a great story. My uh, managing editor often says you're only as good as your last story, right? So the next day, the question is, what are you going to deliver? And I felt that level of pressure early on. And I think there's ways to manage that. But I think it can also work in the right way and, and motivate you to keep delivering great content.
0: Absolutely. I want to backtrack a little bit because in high school, you thought you were going to pursue medicine, it sounds like. At the University of Washington, you majored in biology. You decided that wasn't it and then ended up working at Accenture, I believe. Can you walk me through your early career and how you ended up in journalism? Yeah, that was a crushing
1: moment, right? To deliver the news to my parents who had their hopes and dreams set on their daughter becoming a doctor. But I had to quickly tell them in college that that was not going to be the case, you know, and sort of shattered their dreams in a little way. But looking back, it was sort of the best decision I made because, You often have to follow your gut, even if the people who are closest to you are saying something different, if it doesn't feel right. I think following your heart is so important because I wasn't meant to be a doctor. However, what I think I gained from my pre-med was a great sense of respect for research. I worked in research labs most summers at the University of Washington, including a summer internship in India and Bangalore my junior year. And so Working with really dense research and then being able to extrapolate a story or a hypothesis, that's sort of what journalists do. And so in a way, it kind of set me up for this career as a correspondent.
0: Super interesting. And then how did you get that initial opportunity at CNBC? Yeah, I
1: was after working in management consulting in San Francisco, really set on just making this journalism career a reality, applying to anyone and everyone, right? I was also very interested in working in India. And so this was an opportunity that came up and I pitched it as, yes, I may not know Indian news as well, but I come in with a great business acumen and I think I'll be able to provide something unique to your network. And they took a shot and I moved to India and then the rest was history.
0: Wow. And now, obviously, there's different types of journalism, right? There's print, there's broadcast, there's also people that work on the production side of things. Did you know that going on air was going to be your end goal? Or were you just trying to break in?
1: No, absolutely not. Just wanted to break in. Being a writer, being some type of content producer was the goal. I just really wanted to be a storyteller. Over time, after filing some stories, I was given the opportunity to come on air a couple times and that sort of led to more opportunities. But yeah, and I think even now as a multimedia reporter... TV, we know ratings are down across the board. This next generation, they're using social media and their phone to consume news. So as much as I am a TV correspondent, I think we all think of ourselves now as multimedia journalists who not only have TV as one sort of stage that they share their content on, but it's really important to then use Twitter and other Mm -hmm. outlets to get your stories out because that's just how this fast-paced environment works these days.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm curious, having been in this space for over a decade, does it ever feel overwhelming with the pace at which things are moving and how many platforms you have to be spread across at any given time? It can be overwhelming, but
1: honestly, I think with any job, you just get used to it, right? I wake up every day with two phones, looking at both of them at the same time. My husband always thinks I'm crazy. One phone is talking to a source the other I'm going back and forth with my editor on the story that I'm going to offer today but it's a delicate dance and it's kind of beautiful and chaotic in its own way you make it work and by the time it's 8:15 you're on the editorial call pitching story and telling producers why they should put you on the market opens at 9:30 you're at your desk and um yeah it can be a little challenging at times but I think over time you get used to it and it becomes like a nice flow a nice routine over time
0: wow Can you walk us through what a day in your life looks like, just based on what you've already started to describe? I mean, it does seem pretty involved and intense, but also exciting. It is exciting.
1: I think that's sort of how I approach a day in the life of a reporter, because you wake up early, around 5 a.m. or earlier, you're checking your phone, you're reaching out to sources in the industry that you cover. I'm also talking to our team in the morning because news usually breaks around 5.30, 6 a.m. That's when press releases will start to go out. There's news from overnight that often can have a sizable impact on the performance of financial markets. So getting up to speed as to where Asia markets close, where Europe is trading, that can inform your reporting on which stocks or sectors could be moving in your area of focus once the market's open here in the U.S. So Yeah. As a journalist, you don't sleep a lot. But I think over time, as you grow your Rolodex of individuals who you speak to, you become much more aware and can anticipate the news that's going to happen. That's the goal, right? As a journalist, predict what could be the news tomorrow. And I think that's a humbling moment when you're able to do so. It doesn't happen every day, but that's the goal. Yeah. But it's exciting. I think you're always on your feet often in the studio. Although last week I was in Sheboygan, Wisconsin reporting on the housing shortage, which was really fun. I think getting out of New York is so important as a journalist to be able to speak to folks across the nation, across the world, because you got to understand who your audience is and also hear their story, especially when it comes to Mm. economy right now. We're in a tough moment. And I think the more people you can speak to and get their story, what they're experiencing, the better.
0: Yeah, super, super fascinating. Obviously, you had this background in management consulting. I myself spent some time working in finance, but I understand that working in the field and reporting on it are two very different things. The type of understanding that you have to have, the way you're able to convey it to anyone and everyone who's watching your show or reading the articles that you're putting out. Was that a steep learning curve for you? Yes, I think that's a great point. Financial news is not easy.
1: It can be, as you know complicated, complex, not easy to simplify, but honestly Simi, that's one of my biggest goals and I think something I try to bring to the table which is decoding a lot of the financial news, making it easier to understand. You're simplifying it in a way, but you're also making it personable and digestible for the audience because When we're on CNBC, we're not just speaking to investors on Wall Street, we're speaking to folks across America who have a portfolio, a 401k, they want to know what their portfolio is going to look like tomorrow or by the end of the year. Absolutely. And with this type of market volatility, you've got to be able to provide them accurate news and help them understand, okay, the job status just came out, but the market is down, here's why. So being able to extrapolate the data and make sense of it, that definitely takes time. And I'm thankful to be around a great team here that provides great support, but also people who over time, economists who have befriended, folks on Wall Street who have helped me become smarter and a better reporter, because that's key. You got to be able to simplify and be able to tell everyone what the news is. A banker on Wall Street, your mom, <laughs> that's the success of a real reporter, someone who can tell the news to anyone.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Okay. So you kickstarted your career at CNBC TV 18 in India, and then you eventually pivoted to CNBC Europe. Can you speak to how you made that transition? What doors sort of were open for you along the way?
1: Yeah. So after I was in India, I got an opportunity to work in New York as a full-time correspondent with CNBC, but I still had that burning desire to work overseas. I think once you work at a foreign bureau, it's hard to leave because it's such an exciting environment to be around. So I think I always made my interest known internally about my love for foreign affairs and being overseas. So when the opportunity presented itself to work as a European correspondent with CNBC in London, and also co-anchor our only truly international show, which was Worldwide Exchange, I really jumped at the opportunity. And it was an amazing experience. I think London is one of the most special cities, extremely cosmopolitan, but more importantly, the news content is extremely diverse. You know, I think here in the U.S., we only cover international affairs when it's a crisis. In London, I'm sure you know, the front page is what's happening in Nigeria, Russia, U.K. election, and the latest news in India. I mean, it's so geographically diverse that it makes it really exciting to be there, and you learn a lot. So, love that experience, and over time then came back to New
0: York. Yeah, I really appreciate that sentiment in particular because in the times that I've spent time abroad, either working or living, I've noted that I'm much more in tune with what's going on around the world because that's more of the culture in other places versus the U.S. tends to be very U.S.-centric or Eurocentric, except in instances where, like you said, there's a crisis or catastrophe going on.
1: Well, I think that also comes from our culture as... Daughters of immigrants who grew up overseas, we naturally are inclined to pay attention to the news happening not just in India, but in other countries. It just comes with the cultural background, this curiosity about what's happening around the world. And you're right. I think our educational system here in the U.S. also needs to do a better job in dissecting foreign policy and world history to a greater extent. I don't know about you, Simi, but when I was a kid growing up and spending a couple months in India with cousins in New Delhi or Punjab, I was always fascinated by their level of knowledge, U.S. history. They could name the first 12 presidents of the United States. I can't do that right now. I think it just goes to show how there's significant room for improvement when it comes to Americans and their knowledge of world history. And it'll happen over time, hopefully.
0: I hope so. I feel very similarly. I mean, even I ask very basic questions to my parents about India's government system and their legislative process. And it's like they and my cousins have managed to learn about our systems and many other world systems. And I'm asking sort of these amateur questions, to be honest, because I never was taught them or or given the space to learn them in school. And I actually also saw an interesting conversation about this with regard to partition and how that was something that most students growing up in America are not taught about, despite the fact that it was one of the most massive migrations in world history.
1: Well, you know, the world order is changing. So over time, it'll be a humbling moment for a lot of Americans where we will start learning a lot more about Chinese history, (laughs) Indian history. Because if you look at economics and demographics, these are the two countries that are the highest populated nations and over time are playing a significant role in GDP growth. So as more business shifts to that part of the world, I think that will also inform the type of education we'll have here in the U.S. Just naturally, if that's where business is coming from, we're going to have to learn more about their culture and government structure and whatnot.
0: Yeah. I'm curious how that's extended to journalism, actually. I mean, given that you've been in this space, like I said, for over a decade, I'm sure you've noted the trends and how reporting and what places you report on has evolved over time. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I think Russia is a great example.
1: I think our American audience, and humbly speaking, even as myself, as a journalist, didn't have that much knowledge about their government structure, their economy. I knew the basics, but I think when you have a war that takes place, you suddenly have to become a mini-expert on a region and an issue that is suddenly become now on the world stage. So in those moments, I think you have to be able to surround yourself with people who you can easily tap on and say, all right, you are the Russia expert, what do I need to know? Finding those think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations or the Atlantic Council that can, again, provide a deep dive on a certain issue. That way, when you're on air, you feel much more <laughs> informed on what's happening Or you're in a conversation, at least you have that level of history. There's no way one person can know everything. Everything, yeah. Right? But when there's a current affair that suddenly becomes the biggest news, having that level of historical context is so key to providing accurate reporting and also just having a deeper investigative piece. And so, yeah, there are moments in time where you suddenly, it's kind of like crash course on on Russia, crash course on oil when it starts to, you know, hit... $110 a barrel. There are moments where you kind of have to put in those extra hours to ensure that next day when you wake up, you know that you're coming from an informed place.
0: It's very obvious that you're super plugged in and on top of all the current events that are going on and what you need to know about when. But you're still one of the few on-air South Asian personalities and few women in leading business news. What do you think it is that over the course of your career has really set you apart? I
1: would say what set me apart was, again, owning my story. I think it's very easy when you're a minority and you're one of the few people in a room that looks the way you do, it's easy to conform and not always share your unique experiences because you want to fit in, and I've always tried to do the opposite. and My stories may be different, my childhood stories were perhaps different. I can't always relate to every pop culture joke in the newsroom, but instead of ignoring it and staying quiet, just calling it out. And I think in a way that can work in your favor over time because again, you're standing up for who you are and you're leaving your mark no matter what. And again, sharing one's ambitions, not being quiet about it. I remember early on, I was not embarrassed, but I felt insecure about sharing my interest in being a journalist because I had no experience. But as I started to share with more people in my community, the more you get the word out, there'll be someone who says, hey, you should grab coffee with one of my ex-colleagues who now is a reporter at the Washington Post. Or, oh, you know what, by the way, I used to work for someone who's now at the Wall Street Journal. That is literally the way you start to build your Rolodex in the industry you want to work in. So I think being bold, putting the word out there and not being shy about what your dreams are because you never know what one introduction
0: can lead to. And that's key. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I'm curious what stories that there have been that you've reported on that have been transformative for you that you felt really changed you as a journalist and changed your progression.
1: I think the moments I've had the opportunity to report on a large international story, whether it's Brexit in the UK, the death of Qasem Soleimani in Iran, a huge political figure and the effect that had on the energy market and the cultural dynamics at play there. And even though I'm based here in the US, I still keep a very close eye on India. So if there's any news regarding the country, I'm on it, whether it's the political pressure that Prime Minister Modi is feeling right now the economic troubles that the country is enduring because of high inflation. So I would say it's the international stories that perhaps have been the most powerful. But in business news, there are so many stories that affect Americans on a regular basis, whether it's the price of their home, the cost of their food, understanding whether travel prices will stay as high as they have been over the last few weeks. These stories, they impact the way people budget their time and money, how much they allocate towards groceries and household goods. So I always think the stories we deliver in business news on CNBC, they can really have an effect, a powerful effect on how people think about the economy and then the investment decisions they make.
0: Yeah. To that end, Obviously, reporting at the intersection of politics and economics, both which are very poignant areas for many, many people and have such a high impact on them. And being the fact that you're in the public sphere, right, you're on Twitter, you're on TV. Have you ever faced pushback or criticism on any reporting you've done? And can you speak to that?
1: Oh, all the time. Twitter <laughs> is the most fun in a way as a reporter you need it because it's the way you are often getting your stories out on air not everyone watches so you have to be able to post that story on twitter so others who missed it can then Absolutely. consume it and watch it. But yeah, there's always going to be people who don't agree with what you say. I think we at CBC, we are unbiased. We are literally here to deliver business news. And so there's less pushback than perhaps someone who reports on politics. But there's always going to be someone who doesn't agree with the way you're telling a story. And how do I deal with it? Sometimes I engage. I think sometimes it's nice to just because why not? It's social media. We should be able to have a conversation with someone even if we don't agree with them. But if it's really mean, I usually just ignore it. A lot of times okay. I block them. Wow. <laughs> just
0: Makes <depends>. sense. <laughs> so you've been able to meet and interview many, many world-renowned leaders throughout your career, Richard Branson, Shinzo Abe, just to name two of a million. Have there been any particularly memorable moments or conversations you've had?
1: Yeah, I feel fortunate that I've had, through hustle and hard work, being able to develop sort of a Rolodex of... CEOs and confidants who I speak to regularly, whether it's on air or off air, who can provide a detailed, real view on the economy, corporate America, bigger issues like Roe versus Wade. How should CEOs respond? In terms of conversations that stand out to me, I did get an interview with the ambassador of China a couple years ago when former President Trump imposed the first tranche of tariffs on China and the market was responding in a very big way. Stocks were down a lot. And that interview was sort of the first time, one of the first times, someone from the Chinese party spoke to US media. Wow. And I think the comments were powerful and they provided some great context to what was happening at the time. So that was pretty cool. I recently interviewed the CEO of Marriott, who talked about just the immense spending we're seeing in the luxury travel sector, which I think is just fascinating when you think about the higher income American and how much wealth they've accumulated over the last two years, given the outperformance in the stock market, but whether that can last now that inflation is rampant and doesn't seem to be going away. So it really depends on the person. I also loved the conversation I had with Indra Nui a couple months ago. That was a heartfelt, beautiful story she shared, also profiling her book, and her rise and incredible success. So it depends on the day, but there's always someone interesting to talk to.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to spend a second on that because in that instance, it was you, it was Reshma Sawjani, and of course it was Indra. What a powerful room to be in and see three successful South Asian women having this conversation. I'm curious in what ways... Being able to build those connections with other South Asian leaders, especially with the rise we've seen in the C-suite over the past number of years, has impacted you and your reporting and what stories you've been able to bring to the table.
1: I think it's significant to see the number of CEOs who are of South Asian descent now leading some of the most powerful companies across corporate America, Alphabet, Microsoft, MasterCard. Micron, there are so many, and I think it just speaks to what this community has been able to build over time, but also just some really incredible, successful people who have been able to show that they're worth it and now in very important positions at some of the most powerful companies. And so curious to track their progress as CEOs and what they're able to make of it. I think the CEO of FedEx, Raj Swomenium, really interesting timing and business that FedEx is trying to build as it deals with competition from Amazon. So every CEO has their own challenges. They may be CEO now, but the question is, how do they outperform? And I think as a reporter, yeah, I'm very keen on following their progress and reporting on it. But in general, just seeing the diversity across the workplace, I think it's great. I think it's very encouraging. I don't know about you, but for the next generation to see this level of representation. Growing up, There was only Indra Nui and Ajay Banga. For me, I'm a little older than you. But now to see so many in the C-suite, that's highly encouraging. And I think it's going to have a really positive effect on corporate America.
0: And I mean, that's honestly, frankly, why we do what we do with Trailblazers, right, is to help the next generation and honestly, generations of South Asians see who's out there. Because oftentimes, obviously, we hear these big names, but there are other people, not just within corporate America, but beyond that space who are doing incredible things like yourself. It's great. As you were rising, I'm sure the representation of South Asians in journalism was much more minimal than it is now. Have you been able to forge connections with other South Asian journalists? And what has it been like being a minority in this space, particularly within business journalism?
1: Yeah, I think there is a sense of camaraderie in, amongst those of us who are journalists and happen to be South Asian because there's not many. It's definitely in growing, so there is a sense of pride and. There was a group of us when I first joined CNBC, Wall Street Journal, we would all get together and there oh, wow. are stories. I need to get back in touch with that group. But yeah, I think the journalists who are South Asian definitely try to help one another out. If we've got an interesting source or a story that doesn't fit our respective beats, sending an e-intro, seeing if they're interested, there's always ways I think our community can work together. And then even to our previous conversation on Wall Street to see so much more diversity There's times where you bump into someone at a birthday party or, you know, now the more people we have from our community represented across journalism, the financial landscape, there's just more areas for networking and building a community in general.
0: It's a really, really exciting thing to see and it's clear that there's so much that goes on behind the scenes with regard to the research that's done, preparation, delivery, actually getting on screen. What are some of the behind the scenes secrets that you think viewers and aspiring young journalists should know? Here's one thing people don't
1: always understand.
0: You as a journalist are sourcing
1: all of your own stories. You're building your own material. You work with an editor to get a story approved and sometimes legal, depending on the story. But it's all up to you to figure out how many times you're going to come on air, what your stories are going to be. And so you wake up every day with a mission to reach out to people in your community, those who you speak to in your respective beats, and figure out what your offering is going to be. Here's one thing people don't always know. It takes a lot of time and effort to build one story. By the time you actually get on air, it may be only two minutes of airtime, but the run-up to getting on air can often take weeks of research, investigations, countless conversations with different contacts to ensure that your story is tight, accurate, and also is providing something different. When you wake up every day, the question is not only what can you cover, but what's my angle? What am I delivering that is different than my competition? You want people to view your stories and to consume your stories. Can I get the CEO commentary versus the Wall Street Journal that may have got the CFO? Always trying to strive to deliver something more than the other people around you, I think, is something people don't always understand or fully appreciate. Oh, and then I guess behind the scenes, being in a newsroom is fantastic. It's so fun. I think we're now starting to return to the office, which is great. So just having that hybrid opportunity to be able to be in the studio, but also work from home and in from the city. We're obviously in Inglewood Cliffs, so there is a little bit of a trek to get out here. But being in a newsroom is really exciting and it's intense and it's fast paced, but I think it makes for a really fun environment.
0: Wow. I mean, it's so clear that you have such a passion for this work. But to a degree, you also did somewhat fall into journalism. What motivates you to pursue this field and to continue, you know, running at 100 miles an hour?
1: I think there's always room for improvement. And there's always like the next big interview, the next big opportunity to tackle. So I think that's what keeps me motivated. And the news is always changing. So you may think... What I have today is the best interview I could ever get, but tomorrow they'll be the next influential leader that emerges and you say, all right, that's the person who I need to get on air. Or I need to spend time with. So that's what's humbling about the news. It's changing on a regular basis and it keeps you on your toes. I think what first motivated me to become a journalist was my time in India, growing up, going to my grandparents' home in Punjab and sitting on the roof and hearing my grandparents talk about India's fight for independence. And those stories were just so rich and beautiful and full of controversy that I was like, gosh, I can be a storyteller one day. And that's sort of where the inspiration came from early on, for sure.
0: Wow. Given that you've risen through your career thus far, had this amazing career at CNBC. What next big thing are you looking forward to? Any major goals?
1: Yeah, I would say cover the Olympics, spend more time covering politics. I would love to have the opportunity to travel with the president one day. I would also love to produce a show, actually kind of similar to what you're doing, but profiling more South Asians and their immigrant story from India to the US. I really think one of the ways to tackle racism in general is through education and good storytelling. And I often experience this when I go to small towns in the Midwest, where it's predominantly white, I will often get, you know, sort of a a look like, oh, she's different. But the minute I actually just talk to them and explain who I am and what I'm in town for, they just open up and are so willing to talk. And I think it just tells me that Racism is just, it comes from people not fully understanding who that other person is. And I think through good storytelling and good shows, you can get people to tune in and say, you know what, we're not that different. And that could perhaps break down some boundaries. So would love to work on a broader show on that at some point. But as a journalist, just keep rocking it. Keep going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, super, super excited to see hopefully all of those goals come to fruition. The last question I have for you is given that you've carved out this incredible career trajectory, what advice do you have for young South Asians who, you know, might have gotten started and not necessarily in the exact career path that was meant for them or who want to more seriously pursue media and journalism as you have? It's
1: okay to try a career and decide it's not for you. Failure actually can lead to great success. And being honest with yourself. I think as South Asians, there's a lot of pressure put on us to succeed and do extremely well. But the path is not always linear. And I think it's important that we own that and understand that, especially in the world that we live in today. If you don't think you're so good at something, move on, figure out what it is, because it's in your 20s where you can make those mistakes, pivot, and lead to an even better opportunity so i think trusting your gut understanding it's okay to fail pivot taking those risks especially in your 20s i think is so key and i would also say look for those opportunities to work overseas whether as a journalist or not being in an environment where you're surrounded by a different culture different people can be truly enriching and it can also lead to some great friends over time who are in different places in your life around the world. And you get married and then you have built a community of people in different parts of the world, which can be kind of fun. So I think that I would say it also helped me mature a lot. I grew up, you know, in a small town in Portland, Oregon. And I think that time overseas just gave me much more perspective on life and you get to see how other people live their life and learn from it.
0: I love that latter piece of advice because like I said at the start, it really sounds like it jump-started your career in many, many ways and made you a scrappier journalist who had this amazing hustle.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I think saying yes to those opportunities early on, seeking them out is really key. And I think working and living overseas can give one a really unique perspective on life. And as a journalist, it helped me grow and helped me mature. And See life from a different perspective, which if you want to be a well-rounded journalist or working professional, there's no better way of doing that than seeing the world and traveling and getting that experience.
0: Definitely. Well, Seema, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. It was so wonderful to see you again. And I'm so, so excited to have our listeners hear more about how you did, what you did and what you're doing today. And to see, like I said, all the amazing things ahead for you. So happy to be here. Thanks for your time, Simi. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.